Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. In the suburbs of Mississauga, Ontario, which is a city just west of Toronto, formerly known as Toronto Township, on the shores of Lake Ontario there stood a townhouse that the neighbours had an uneasy feeling about. The man that lived there mostly kept to himself, there was something about that townhouse on Copenhagen Road, marked number 28, situated next to the elementary school, occupied by a family of three, that made neighbors uncomfortable in the neighborhood of Meadowvale. Perhaps it was the man's looming, imposing, and muscular figure with tattoos covering his arms. Maybe it was his missing teeth, or the smell of pot that wafted from his house. Or maybe it was the tinfoil on the windows. But what bothered neighbors the most was that the teens in the area would openly come and go from his place at all hours of of the day and night, and they knew they were buying pot from the man that lived there. Parents knew about the house and the drug selling going on there, but there was little that they could do. In fact, one neighbor, Dave Wallace, had approached a police officer who had come to the area on a different matter that the man that owned the house was selling drugs and mostly to teens. But the officer told him he was there on another matter and wasn't going to get involved. The man had been living there for about three years with his common-law wife and her son from a previous marriage, who also kept to themselves. The woman seemed shy and demure, and the young boy seemed a bit of a shell of a person without a lot of personality, as he grew from an 11-year-old into a teenager. Then, in February of 2004, the family split and they moved out. Candace Dubois, who lived across the street from the townhouse, said, When the moving truck came and he left, it was a relief. You just know when something's not right. This is The Murders of Robert Grewal, Joey Manchisi, and Renee Charlebaugh. things first, I have to give kudos to Kevin Donovan of the Toronto Star who did a lot of research into a lot of the background on today's story. I had a lot of other sources, but his articles were very detailed and he obviously did some legwork, so I want to make sure he's acknowledged for doing the real work here. Robert, or Robbie as he was more commonly known, 
grew up on Copenhagen Road. He loved sports, any sports. His father passed away in 1993, so he lived with his mom, Jatinder. A smooth talker and sharp dresser, he had a philosophy, life is to live, why sleep? But life wasn't always so grand for Robbie. In 1999, one of his cousins died by suicide, and he, and he started to take drugs to cope. He even got into some minor dealing, but by the time he was 22, he was starting to turn things around after a drug possession conviction. He had started taking business classes at Humber's College and had plans to open a grocery store or a video store. He had a job at Sobeys to save up and learn about business. His best friend was 20-year-old Joey Menchisi, a good-looking young man whose dad, Giuseppe, or Joe, a real estate investor, took him on trips to Mexico and Italy. He was a great cook, did well in school, and was going to George Brown College in Toronto with plans to work in his father's real estate business. He had not had much legal problems other than a fight that he got into at 15, but unbeknownst to his family, he also occasionally took and sold drugs here and there. His parents had divorced but remained friendly, and he stayed living with his mom. On the morning of November 12, 2003, which was a Wednesday, Jatinder had come home from work to meet with a painter. Jatinder worked as a cab driver, so her hours were a bit flexible. At 10.30 that morning, Joey drove up in his blue Honda Civic and walked into the house in his normal gregarious way. Robbie, who had been sleeping, got up and walked out the door with Joey, calling to his mum, We're just going to go to Tim Hortons around the corner. Robbie had mentioned to his sister the night before that he had an appointment at 11.30, but she didn't know what it was for. So Jatinder knew something was wrong when Robbie didn't return home on November 12th. She says, quote, A mother knows. I don't know how to explain it, but I just knew something terrible had happened. Police tried to calm my fears, but I knew something wasn't right. How the police tried to calm her fears were by telling her that Joey might, that him and Joey might have taken a vacation to Mexico and just probably needed time to himself. Joe and Jatinder spoke by phone and tried to think the same way. They were young men, after all, and could do what they wanted. But it was just all so weird. Leaving on a whim without a word to anyone was not like either young man, and Jatinder and Joey's dad, Joe, were concerned about their disappearance. It just wasn't right. Nothing about it felt right. With the police not concerned, Jatinder threw herself into her work as a taxi driver to avoid being at home where she could, all she could feel was Robert's absence. They had officially filed a police report by the Saturday with the Peel police, but they didn't feel it was being taken seriously at all. Joe was determined to get to the bottom of it, and he took to Joey's phone book and called every single number. The name Douglas Moore came up repeatedly from his friends and other family members, so he got the number for this Douglas Moore and called him and asked him if he knew Joey Manchisi. But Doug had said, Do you know how old I am? What would I do with this guy who's 20 years old? So Joe hung up feeling even more uneasy. Joe had never mentioned Joey's age to Doug. So he took that information to the police. Basically, I nailed this bastard down. I told the police where he lived and where he worked, so they knew from day one about Doug Moore. But one of the detectives said to me, Joe, usually these types aren't violent. In fact, what the detective said was, quote, Joe, this Moore guy is a pedophile. These guys are not usually dangerous. Joe also learned from some of Joey's friends in their phone book, I came across a lot of kids who mentioned that Moore was going around saying he was going to kill these guys, 
and I told the cops that. Apparently, they had stolen money from him, and that was the word that was going around. To Joe, Douglas Moore was suspect number one, but not to the police. The police made a comment by saying, don't take matters into your own hands. You find out something, you give it to us, which I did. Later that evening, a tree cutter in Montreal found a torso in a wooded area. Its hands and head had been removed. Police in Montreal started working on trying to identify the body. On December 12, 2003, about a month later, 15-year-old and grade 10 student in Meadowvale, who lived with his sister Tracy and mom Jaytoon, who described Renee as the best son a parent could ask for, left school at 3.30 that afternoon. Normally, Renee would come home, turn on his computer, and message with friends. But this day, he didn't arrive home, and by 9, his mom filed a missing persons report. Christmas came and went for the three families without any word from them or about them. Over in the rural area of Bell Fountain in March 2004, Linda and Peter Norton, a foster family, learned that not just one, but three of her former foster kids, two of whom were developmentally delayed, had been molested repeatedly by someone that had been in her house. Their fostership was immediately terminated, and when Linda was brought in for questioning on the matter, she was informed that her friend and handyman and occasional babysitter was not the ex-con because of a manslaughter, stupid mistake in his youth, but was actually a convicted pedophile. A CAS worker, Lucy Bestronzi, said, This situation is very troubling to us. Our policy is very clear. We have a manual. We have training. And what happened here was that a family had allowed children in its care to have visits with a person over 18 who had not undergone a police record check. So they were allowing Doug Moore to be around. That's right, Doug Moore. The same guy from the townhouse that sold drugs and the same guy Joe and Jatinder were convinced had something to do with their son's disappearances. Douglas was arrested at a motel in Burlington on March 15, 2004. He had been tracked down by his cell phone records. After having been tasered, he was taken to the Maplehurst Detention Center in Milton to await trial for the sexual abuse charges. After being denied bail, his mom, Mildred, came to visit him. Doug told her that the police had beaten him and what what they were saying about him as a child molester wasn't true. Mildred was furious with the police for abusing her poor boy, and he was charged with 11 sex-related charges. Four days later, on March 19th, a body was found crammed into a hockey bag in an Orangeville area landfill site. The body was identified about 10 days later from DNA as Renee Charlebaugh. Police never revealed the link between Renee and Moore, but it is believed that he was a drug purchaser and that frequented his townhouse in Meadowvale. And upon discovery of Renee, the police finally started looking into Douglas for the disappearance of Robert and Joey and the murder of Renee. And shortly after the discovery of Renee's body, they were also able to get warrants to search his house and car. Douglas was interviewed in jail about the disappearances and murder, but he denied any involvement. However, they were able to find an informant that told police that the 1992 Honda Civic Joey was driving when he disappeared had been spotted in Orangeville. The caller told the police that he had been holding the car for Douglas, and after he was arrested, he called him in jail and asked him what he should do with it, to which Douglas had said, burn it. 
The informant said that he had been offered $400 to destroy the car, but fortunately the man came to police instead, so they were able to seize the car still untorched. Douglas knew that if he was convicted this time, it was going to come with a dangerous offender designation. In phone records reviewed after his arrest, it was discovered that he had talked repeatedly about how he would kill himself before going back to jail. Being named a dangerous offender in Canada means that he can remain locked up for the rest of his life. Paul Bernardo is a dangerous offender just for reference. He told a friend on the phone, I'll be a dead sex pedophile. I'll just jump off a swing and hang. I'll be dead because of my past. He also said that he wasn't afraid to die and that he was fed up and tired and turning himself in was just not an option. Douglas Moore was found hanging in his cell at 3 a.m. on April 2, 2004. He had used pieces of torn bedsheet to restrain his ankles and hands and tied the remaining sheets to a hinge on his cell door. Parts of the suicide note left by him said, I have been planning to kill myself for some time now. I no longer wish to deal with any of this mess any longer. I feel it will be easier for my loved ones to mourn my death than to go through the mess I have created. I just want it to end now. I hate what has happened to my life, caused by the poor choices I've made. It is now time to change everything and make it right. One week later, police in Montreal identified the torso that they had found in November in a shallow grave in a wooded area outside of Ville-Messière was identified as that of Robert Grewal. His head and hands had been removed and they have never been found. On April 27, 2004, Joey Manchisi's torso was found in the same condition about 20 kilometers from Robert's in a park along the St. Lawrence. Joey's stepmom, Christine, said just before getting confirmation from the DNA, we've been holding on to what little hope we have, but it's slowly going. By killing himself, Douglas would deprive the community of answers. He had been taken off suicide watch 12 days before on the advice of a doctor. Normally, the death of a pedophile wouldn't be a bad thing. But when it comes without answers for the families of the dead, it's frustrating and heartbreaking not for the loss of his life, but for the loss of a sense of justice and finding any answers. Joe Manchisi and Jatinder Grewal, Robert's mum, were dismayed that he had been taken off to suicide watch. Although it would have appeared suspicious seeing that his hands and ankles were tied up, apparently it's not that unusual when someone is intent on ending their lives seriously. He also had a cellmate that might have helped him and wouldn't have alerted staff of his intentions. Uh, He said that he slept through the event. Because Douglas had died while in custody, a coroner's inquest was done. The doctor that took him off suicide, which was Dr. Doug Milroy, was duped by Douglas that he didn't know what he had been arrested for. He never read the records. He thought that it was just a small, he was just a small time drug dealer. So the doctor believed what Douglas told him. Quote, he denied being suicidal. He said he was under suicide watch as a mix-up and that he was there because of his injuries, which were bruises to his head during his arrest. I bought what he was saying. He was a confident individual. His confidence was contagious. He made good eye contact, end quote. The only recommendation to come out of the inquest was that the medical files of all inmates entering a correctional facility should contain specific references to their mental disorders or suicidal thoughts. But the story gets even worse. Actually, before we are done today, it's going to get horrific. So hang in there. 
Douglas's common-law wife, the one that neighbor, the neighbor described as shy and demure, her name was Sandra Martin and was later convicted of being an accessory after the fact to the murders. She got six months for that, and worse than that, the boy that cannot be named that was 14 at the time and living with Moore and Martin, um, but believed not to be Sandra's son, was also convicted of being an accessory after the fact and also got a six-month sentence for helping dispose of the dismembered bodies of Joey and Robert. He told the court that Douglas had lured Robert and Joey into his garage and tied one of them to a chair while he beat the other to death with a baseball bat and then took a skate lace and strangled the other in the chair. The boy never revealed which boy received which punishment. What he did say is that he allowed Robert and Joey to take the blame for stealing $4,000 worth of marijuana and jewelry from Douglas. He admitted to the court that it had in fact been him that had stole the property and the two teens had not been involved at all. He says that the hands and the head are buried somewhere near Cornwall, but they have never been located. Joe is convinced that the boy knows exactly where his son's head and hands were buried. Quote, I was hoping he would tell the police he didn't, but I'm convinced he knows. Jatinder said, it seems that criminals get all the rights. There's never any justice for the victims. Joey's stepmom, Christine, asked the Toronto Star, how is it possible for someone like this to fall through the system? And that is a great question. Douglas Donald Moore was born in Montreal to his mom, Mildred and Douglas Sr. Douglas had been the fifth baby born to them in a span of five years, and the family sustained themselves mostly on welfare. Douglas Sr. was a drinker with diabetes who didn't take care of himself at all. Mildred did a little bit better in life, but it was hard being married to a drunk and with one of Doug Jr.'s brothers suffering from cerebral palsy. Doug himself had some health issues. He had allergies and severe asthma. He was also left slightly deaf in one ear from the tubes that were inserted to help with his constant recurring ear infections. He was also a troublemaker from an early age, shoplifting candy at the age of 10. Two of Doug's sisters went into counseling and reported to the therapist that their father had been sexually abusing them. Doug later revealed to his mom that he had also been abused. Mildred divorced Douglas Sr., but did not contact the police, feeling it would be more traumatic for the kids. Mildred moved on to her second husband, Bill, who was a little bit more stable. He had a job, at least, so the family moved to Mississauga in an area called Clarkson. By the time Doug was 16, he was selling drugs out of his Ford Maverick at his school, Lauren Park's secondary school, which he rarely attended. He officially dropped out in grade 10, content with making money from his drug sales. It was around this time when Doug started to get sexual interest in young boys, getting him a reputation as a bit of a pervert. But because he could get kids drugs, they didn't worry about it too much. He also had a bit of a temper, so they knew best not to get into it with him. One time, he took a baseball bat to a 17-year-old, accusing him of stealing from his wallet. He pled guilty to assault and paid a $200 fine. Although kids in the area knew Douglas as a drug dealer and sometimes violent guy, the moms in the area thought he was great. Trudy Finch thought so, saying of him, quote, He was so nice and pleasant and always volunteering to help. But in 1986, her 16-year-old son told her not to trust him. He does things to us, he told her. She went to the police where the boys were interviewed and Doug was charged with four counts of sexual assault. 
But while awaiting trial and out on bail, Doug tried to intimidate the boys by parking outside their house and threatening to kill them. But for some reason, he wound up pleading guilty to the charges and got a four-month sentence in jail and two years of probation. So he did his four months at the Guelph Correctional Center where the psychiatrist found him to have pedophilic tendencies. Uh, Immediately after his release, he was arrested again for threatening the family that he had victimized. He was charged with mischief, which is just a fine. Trudy went to Mildred and said, Millie, Doug is sick. You know that, don't you? Mildred responded that she knew that. One of Trudy's sons later committed suicide over the abuse and threats. Doug was then sentenced to 13 months in jail for breaking into the construction company office that he was working for and three years of probation for that. 13 months for theft and four months for molesting boys. That doesn't quite seem right. But he was out before 1987 was over and able to spend Christmas with his mum. I will be right back after these brief messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After that, Doug moved out to BC, breaking his probation and used some stolen ID to get a driver's license. He moved in with his now dying father, who had sobered up and took over his paper route. After his father's death, he moved in with a single mom in Surrey, BC named Jenny, who had a daughter 13 and a 15-year-old son. While he was living with Jenny, a 12-year-old boy was brought into the police station on a mistaken identity regarding a stolen bike. The boy didn't have anything to do with the bike, and the police figured that out quickly. But while he was being asked questions, the young boy asked the officer, what would someone do if they knew somebody touched somebody inappropriately? To which the officer said, you would tell the police. And with that, the young boy told him that Doug approached him one day while on an errand to the corner store for his mom, asking if he would wanted to make some money painting one of his bedrooms. 
Doug had led him to the room and ordered him to take his pants down and fondled him until Douglas ejaculated, then told him to clean himself up and handed him a $2 bill, telling him that they better not say anything. The poor young man was forced to testify in court, and before sentencing, he was assessed by doctors as having homosexual pedophilic tendencies and recommended a sophisticated and long-term treatment program for his sex, drug, and alcohol problems. While out on bail for that charge, he wiped out on his motorcycle, hitting a car in the incident, and took off. For the sexual charges against the young boy, he got four years, plus an additional 30 days for the car crash. And while serving his sentence, he managed to finish grade 11, but he didn't take the prison up on any officers offers to treat his sexual deviant behavior. Uh, but then he didn't get a chance to finish grade 12 there because he was released less than two years in on parole. He then moved to Vancouver in a halfway house where he stayed for a month before skipping town to Mississauga. There, a young boy we'll call Timmy was sent to buy butter at the local A&P for his mum, and on the way he stopped in to the pub to ask his stepdad when he was coming home. Douglas was also in the pub, followed him out and asked him if he wanted some beer. Timmy ignored him, but he grabbed him and pulled him between two dumpsters and started to take off Timmy's pants. But the assault was thwarted by two friends of Timmy's that he called out to. Doug threw his beer mug after him and struck Timmy in the head, and he ran off. He pled guilty to that, and the judge ordered a pre-sentence report. It was prepared by probation officer Dwayne Sprague, who recommended a complete psychiatric assessment, followed by a professional treatment. Failing that, Sprague told the court this type of activity may continue in the future. So he was ordered to finish his four-year sentence in B.C. and then start another four years which should have kept him in prison until 1997. But, you guessed it, in 1995 he was again released on day parole into a halfway house. This time he did enroll in a sex offender program and everybody was super impressed with him, except for one psychiatrist that said, you know, he's still attracted to young boys and has anger management issues. Just before 1998 he was completely released free and clear without any supervision. A now bulked up and tattooed Doug got a job at a factory and rented a place with his handicapped brother in Hamilton and told anyone that asked that, yep, he'd done time in prison. I was there for manslaughter for 10 years. I got in a street fight when I was younger. I hit a guy and he fell back, banged his head on the curb, had an aneurysm and died. Around that time, he met the Norton family, the foster parents that he babysat for, and also around this time, he met a plump and unemployed Sandra Martin and her nine-year-old son where they moved into the Meadowvale area. Sandra got a job at KFC, but Doug lost his factory job after getting a 45-day sentence for carrying a concealed weapon that he said he needed to protect himself due to his bisexual lifestyle. By 2003, Sandra had a new job at the Woodbine Racetrack and had a new figure and a new haircut, so she peaced out and in February 2004, they went their separate ways but still lived in the same area. One of the boys that was always hanging around Doug's house at this time was a 14-year-old from Orangeville who liked to do drugs and skip school. He actually started to live in, a, live in the house with Sandra and her son and also Doug's handicapped brother. It was this 14-year-old boy that later was charged as an accessory to the murders. Renee Charlebois was a friend of, of this boy's from back in Orangeville, but no more has ever been said about why he was murdered by Doug. 
The theory is that he was aware of Robert and Joey's murders and had to be eliminated. By this time, Doug was no longer on the radar of police or probation authorities. His last stint of probation had ended in 2002. He received the occasional speeding ticket, but nothing else, because his sex abuse record predated the Provincial Sex Offender Registry, which didn't start until April 2001, he was not listed in the database. It was also before the long-term offender law, which allows judges to give a sentence with up to 10 years of intensive supervision in the community after release. It was later revealed that Peel's children aide was aware that Doug was hanging around the Norton's house, which social workers recorded in their notes. But no background check or anything was ever really noted about it other than that they were aware of him being around the kids. In late October of 2003, he awoke to discover that he had been robbed of cash and drugs and went inquiring around the neighborhood and even filed a police report about it. He had an alarm system installed and started telling anyone that would listen that he was sure that Robbie Grewal and Joey Menchisi were the culprits. They took my weed and my money and the little bastards knew where everything was kept. When I catch the little bastards, I'm going to beat the fuck out of them. After running into Robbie and Joey at Tim Horton's on that fateful November morning, he somehow managed to get them both back to his garage and persuaded the 14-year-old boy to help him cut up the bodies and put them in plastic containers and took them to Montreal to be disposed of. It is alleged that Sandra kept her young son in the house and away from the garage, knowing that the two bodies were being dismembered in there. The 14-year-old, 17 years old at the time of his arrest, served four months at a youth facility and then the last two months at a halfway house. Before his sentence, he spent 18 months on house arrest. Joe asked, where is the justice? Even the six months is bogus, a joke. He's not in jail. He's in a youth facility. His hearing was a complete waste of public money, and he still won't tell us where the rest of the body parts are. Let me find the rest of my boy's body. I don't care what he says. This criminal knows where the heads and hands are buried. Just tell us that's all we want from him now. The teen testified that he had helped Douglas cover up the murders out of fear for his own life and had held Robert and Joey's severed hands while Douglas hosed them off at a coin-operated car wash of all places. They buried the torsos two days later after the murders and the boy had driven out to Montreal with him. The judge had called the murders a horror and wasn't pleased that the boy had denied knowing anything about the murders for five months. At that, he said, he showed a callous disregard for the victim's families, spent the money he stole from more on his friends, knowing full well his story caused more to take their lives. The horrific impact of his participation continues for the families. They have not been able to find all of the remains. And finding his son in Robbie's hands and head is all that Joe wants at this point, telling the Toronto Star, I can't rest until they're found. I won't stop until my son's parts are found and those of his friend. This means everything to me. I need to find those parts. I don't care what it takes. If I have to hire a helicopter or use infrared cameras, I need to do whatever I have to do. We have to do this before the snow falls. He had even used the services of a psychic and searched a farm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She had told him of a dream that she had that he was buried near a barn near a racetrack with the name Crystal, so they googled it and came up with a barn near the Crystal Motor Speedway. The barn was exactly like in her vision 
uh, but I couldn't find anything. I know it didn't make sense for him to take the body parts across the border, but I had to see for myself. Renee's sister Tracy is just frustrated that no motive for her brother's killer has ever been revealed. It still feels like yesterday, more vivid than ever, and the pain remains the same. My brother is forever gone, but never forgotten. Now, before we go, let's take a looky-see at some other child predators that have been set free in our communities since Douglas Moore, as in, what have we learned since our Sex Offender Registry and Dangerous Offenders Acts? Let's see. David Whitmore, he had re repeated convictions for abducting and sexually abusing children dating back to 1989. In 1983, he was convicted for abusing four boys and got a sentence of 16 months. After release, he molested an eight-year-old girl after kidnapping her and got four and a half years. In 2000, he was caught with a 13-year-old boy in a hotel room that got him one year. In 2002, he abducted a five-year-old and was caught with zip ties, duct tape, and KY jelly. He got three more years for that one. Then in 2006, he abducted two boys and kept them chained in an abandoned farmhouse for six days. He was paroled from that offense in 2015. So we didn't learn anything from him. So let's move on. Brian Abramoso. He broke into the home of his ex-girlfriends in 1992 and raped her after 10 years of stalking her with constant phone calls and breaking no contact orders. In 1996, after his four-year sentence for that, he shot a man who thankfully survived. He assaulted the same ex-girlfriend in 2002, but the parole board didn't want to send him back to jail, citing there was little benefit of your reincarceration. In 2004, he beat and raped a, trade, a sex trade worker and a couple of days later drove his van into two young girls on bikes in Langley, B.C. After hitting them, he ran off with the youngest girl, who was only 11, taped her eyes and mouth shut before raping her. He got 18 months for that. He was released into the Okanagan in 2017. Oh, this is a good one. In 2010, Dale Kunith was convicted of torturing a six-week-old baby by burning the baby's feet with a lighter and repeatedly sodomizing the infant with various household objects. He defended his actions by saying it wasn't a sexual thing. He was just mad at his girlfriend for spending time with her ex. The infant suffered physical damage that will follow him his entire life. Dale was released seven years later. Yep, nothing learned there. John Galeen was a piece of work. He worked as a choir master in Kingston and molested an estimated 19 boys between 1970 and 1980. He would put his penis into the boys' mouths and tell them that it would make them sing better. He was convicted of molesting 13 boys, two of whom took their own lives. He was given four and a half years and let out in 1994, and by 2004 was leading a choir in Ottawa. So he racked up some more convictions in 2011 and again in 2016. Each of those gave him only probation and house arrest. Wait, I'm not done yet. Lyle and Kyle Larson were twin brothers in 2009. Lyle raped a minor at a party and photographed it. But by that time, he had actually sexually assaulted 19 other minors, some as young as four years old. He was released in 2013. He was caught grooming an 11-year-old autistic child and watching children at a wading pool in Edmonton. He was released in 2016 with a note from Edmonton police saying that he had reasonable grounds to believe he will commit another sexual offense against someone under the age of 18. 
Kyle, he got a three-year sentence for luring a 10-year-old to his basement apartment and sexually assaulting her. He was released from that in 2012 and broke his parole the next day by looking at child porn online. In 2002, Ashton Natamagan broke into a house and found a sleeping 11-year-old girl. He beat her and then choked her to get her to stop screaming and then decided to rape her. He got four years. Then in 2008, he sexually, he sexually assaulted a 16-year-old girl in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Prosecutors tried to get the dangerous offender label on him, but he, but the judge said, Mr. Natamagan's offending is serious, but not as serious as the many other offenders declared to be dangerous in this jurisdiction and elsewhere. He was released in 2015 to a halfway house where he escaped from and abducted a female jogger in Edmonton and bound her up with tape and held a box cutter to her throat as he raped her. Nope, still not done yet. In probably one of the worst cases that I've ever heard, between 1967 and 1983, James Cooper targeted his stepchildren, a total of five victims during their entire childhoods, not just physically assaulting them, but raping them and using instruments of torture on them, including cattle prods. He once forced his stepson to eat his own feces after defecating from being raped anally in front of the other kids. Justice Nick Borkowicz said in 1993, when he was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison, you are a low down, mean, despicable, evil manifestation of a human being that preys on little children. But he got out in 2008. He has repeatedly breached his bail conditions, including inquiring about children's programs at a community center and, and started relationships with women that would provide him access to children. He has never been returned to prison for these breaches. Chris Watts, not that one, but just as despicable, he ha held a party with a lot of underage girls in attendance in 2001, including a 13-year-old Amanda Raymond. He fed her drugs and she overdosed. But while she was in a coma before she passed away, he raped her. He'd already had a previous conviction for raping a 16-year-old when the police searched the house. They found hidden cameras and hundreds of naked photos of underage girls. He got out in 2015 and has been found with child pornography, but the parole board says, quote, The board is satisfied that there is no appropriate program of supervision that can be established which would adequ adequately protect society from your risk to reoffend. But he has never been returned to prison either. Okay, last one for today. Graham James. As many of you might remember, Graham was the coach of the Swift Current Broncos, an amateur youth hockey league between 1980 and 1990. He sexually abused a large number of boys, including Thurin Fleury and Sheldon Kennedy, who went on to join the NHL. He got six years and a legal pardon and went on to coach other youth hockey teams. He was granted full parole in 2016 after serving only four years. Wait, I thought I was done. There's one more. Daniel Grattan had been convicted in 1990 for a number of sexual offenses against children. He served six years before getting out. He was required to register as a long-term offender, but that didn't stop him from kidnapping and sexually abusing two girls, seven and ten, in Edmonton after snatching them off the street using a dark-colored SUV and an offer of puppies and ice cream as a lure. Okay, now I'm done. Although that is only a small sampling of what Canada has to offer in terms of long-term serial child predators um, that just keep getting released and convicted in a revolving door of horror. 
And that was the murders of Joey Manchisi, Robert Gruel, and Renee Charlebois. I hope you will join me again next week for another episode. In the meantime, as usual, do your rate, review, subscribe, follow. Uh, what else can you do? Oh, reviews, tell your friends, tell your family. And as always, thank you so much for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.